0: Today's sermon text is 1 Thessalonians five, twenty-three through 28. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers, The grace of our lord jesus christ be with you out of all the sports that i learned and played in high school and a little bit beyond the most frustrating sport to me was uh, golf i mean golf was maddening they had all these rules Uh, you had to keep your head down you had to do certain things with your feet distance from the ball and i just remember the first time they explained how to play the game and then i picked up a golf club and i began to swing it's all the 20 rules just went out the door. It, it, was like a, it was like a house of cards collapsing. It was maddening, frustrating to think of all these things at the same time to do them all and to feel like you're doing them all right. You know, For many of us as Christians, we think the struggle is the same with the Christian faith. You have all these, these ought-tos and should-haves and rules and expectations and do this and do this and do this. And it, it, it's kind of maddening and frustrating. This was my fear last week. You know when I when we read five chapter five twelve through twenty there were thirteen imperatives thirteen commands you know you forget the fourth by the time you're on the eleventh you haven't even finished the list it it just it seems like too much it seems very very frustrating it's like with a with a kit you know I even tried to boil it down into four buckets you know kind of uh, follow the leadership be kind to one another and to uh, rejoice in all things he said and then to not quench the spirit. Try to boil it down uh, so that it would be more digestible for you. But it is, it is maddening. It's frustrating. It's like with a little kid, you know, when you try to tell the child to jump up and touch the bar, but you keep raising the bar. It, they just end up getting frustrated and just want to give up on the whole venture. Now, the sad irony here is that the commands that God has given to us are for our good. Uh, They're to lead us into holiness. They're to help us to be remade into the image of God. Uh, The commands really help us to flourish. I mean, when he says, don't commit adultery, he knows the pain and the hardship that will be part of your life. But to have a marriage where you're enjoying intimacy within the context of a covenant, there's a sweetness to that. There's a flourishing to that. Or he says, don't steal he knows that the life of the person that doesn't work very diligently and is always taking from another without their permission uh, versus the one who works diligently and makes a profit and is able to give there's a flourishing to that there's a sweetness to it this is the purpose of god's word god's commands is to help us to become who we are in his image this is the hope that we have in our passage today is god is postured to help you Keep the commands that he gives to you. Remember last week I talked about Augustine? Augustine is a church father. That just means he's a. these church fathers were, were leaders after the apostolic time. And Augustine was a great one, has influenced the church greatly. And if you remember last week, he said, com- he said to God, command what you will and give what you command. So tell me what to do. You're the best one, you're the creator of all. Command what you will, but give to me, what you command me to do. Isn't that a heartbeat? I mean, it's fine for God to command us, to lead us. But then God, give to us what you want us to do because we're unable. And didn't you feel that way? I mean, after seeing all those imperatives, maybe you get one, maybe you get two. And so Paul now is turning to encourage us. He's saying, yeah, I have told you a lot of things to do, but God's going to help you. And so we see in our passage, this prayer, Paul prays to God that God would help us be who he wants us to be. And then he gives us a promise as if to encourage us to pray and to walk out by faith. And then he makes a few pleas at the very end. So there's a prayer, there's a promise, and there's three pleas at the end. So what I want you to walk away with is that God has commanded us but he will also grace us, and that's the beauty of this passage. So look at the prayer with me, because this is the third prayer Paul utters for these people, and, but it's different, so I want you to look at it with me. In verse 23, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and your soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Listen to these words. It's amazing. He's asking really in this prayer for two things. First, he's asking that God would sanctify him completely. And he also asks that God would keep him sanctified. Keep him. So if we were going to make it easier, uh, two prayers is simply, God, make me holy and then keep me holy. Make me holy and keep me holy. Now, this make me holy, the word is sanctification. It's a big word, but it's a big idea. Because what it means is that God is setting us apart. God is making us unique. God is making us different. When you think of a wedding dress. A wedding dress is a dress like all the other dress, but it's unique. It's used for a special occasion. To be made different, to be made set apart. God is taking his people and he's moving them over as a light to the world. They're different from the world. Listen, all of us were born into the world. We're of the world. We're citizens of this world. We're born that way. We we embrace the values and the customs and the ideals of the world. We live like the world. It doesn't matter what color or what culture you're from. We all live with this idea of I want to self-rule, I want to self-protect, I want to self-idolatize want to self myself. I mean, it's just selfishness across the board. But when we become a Christian, when God saves us, we're now different. We're now set apart. We don't follow the same customs and ideals of the world. We begin to live by faith. We begin to exercise love. We begin to... Sacrifice. You know, if you're a Christian, you know the difference. You know how you were and then how you've become. Uh, The the way that you might do your taxes or the way that you might speak in the office or the way you may handle conflict, it should have changed. Uh, It's different now. God has initiated a work in us, calling us to himself. And what Paul's praying is, God, now complete the work. Notice what he says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. In other words, this is a job you can't do. You can white-knuckle it, you can try as hard as you may, but you can't do it on your own. It's designed, God has so designed the maturation of a Christian to be at the hand of God. And notice, he doesn't do it by agent, proxy, or delegate. May God himself sanctify us completely. May God himself do it. But look at the second half of the prayer. Because if God, make me holy, but then keep me holy. Look at the second half of that verse. He speaks about, may he keep our whole spirit, soul, and body. May it be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's praying, God, just preserve what you have started. Just bring it to an end. That I may. when He says blameless, by the way. He doesn't mean without sin. In this life, we can never attain perfection. But we can repent of our sins, we can speak about our failures, we can own our faults, we can reconcile, and we can make restitution to them. That's what it means by being blameless. I'm keeping a short account. I'm striving to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And what Paul is praying is, God, all the way to that last day, make me more and more like you, and preserve the work you've started. Notice he says spirit, soul, and body. A lot of people are led to believe that this is kind of how the Bible sees the human constitution, spirit, soul, and body. I don't believe that's true. It's called a trichotomous position. I don't believe it's true. Uh, why do I say that? Because in 1 Corinthians 7.24, he talks about us being body and soul. And in, Ma- in Mark chapter 12, we're to love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. No body there at all. So I think what he's speaking about spirit, soul, and body is he's saying, make all of us, the entirety of us, bring us Completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ bring us to blamelessness on that final day. So here Paul is praying. He looks to God as the only one. God Himself, this God of peace, who has reconciled reconciled us to Himself through Christ. God Himself has this God of peace has to do it. Do you see God this way? Do you see God as one that you can appeal to to ask for holiness? Do you ever ask God? Do you ever say, God, help me be holy. Help me to want to be holy. Help me to love your word. Help me to want to see your word as a means of flourishing and not as a word of hindrance. Do you ever thank him that you retain faith? You know, many notable people have walked away from the faith and many people that aren't notable just deconferred away from it. But you haven't. Have you thanked them for that? Does it humble you? Does it cause you to to be grateful to God that you're yet retaining in faith when others are not? I want to encourage you that that we want to be asking God. God is the only one who can sanctify us completely. I want you to appeal to God. Ask him, God, you've got to help me. Help me be holy. Sometimes I don't want to be holy. Sin is pleasurable, the scripture says, for a season. It's just for a season, though. And that's what we have to remember. Yeah, there is pleasure there, but there's greater joy in walking after God. So, so Paul is appealing to God. It's for us to do the same, that we might appeal to him. Remember the commands of God. If you're a parent, uh, the, the, the ways that you raised your children, you give them limitations. Is it to hinder their joy? Is it to prevent them from really being fully happy? No, I think most parents would look at the limitations that they place on their children as a means of bringing them to a place of great flourishing. And God does the same. So let's ask our Father God in heaven to help us love and have a passion for holiness. But notice what Paul does next. He he offers this prayer, but then as if to help us believe it, he gives us this promise. Look in 24. In 24 it says, He who calls you is faithful, He will surely do it. It's amazing. The hope that we have to be changed completely and to to be on that final day as a good day, the hope that we have is rooted in the character of God. It's not in your ability to keep on keeping on. It's rooted in his character. He who calls you is faithful. You know, salvation is by invitation, I mean, God is the one that calls us to himself. It is by invitation. And he who calls you is faithful. God is faithful. You you need to meditate on that. We are not faithful people. And so we, we naturally project upon God these times of faithlessness that we have that he may struggle with as well. We don't want to do that. That's what the pagans do as they make their pantheon of God's. No, God is faithful. That means he cannot disown his own word in himself. So he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You think about Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him, even as he called us in him, before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless, God has called you to Himself to be holy and blameless. That is your destiny. He's faithful. He will surely do it. Or in Romans chapter 8, those He predestined, He called. And those He called, He justified. And those He justified, He glorified. It, God will do it. He surely will. Uh, this, you know, Paul's trying to say, look at God. He's going to do it. What's he doing? He's engendering your your faithfulness. Your efforts are going forward. Think about Jesus for a minute. In Hebrews 12, it says that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And he says that who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame. The joy set before him was that he knew he would be victorious over death in saving a people for God. And it was that victory, that promise of God that he would be raised, that moved him through despising and enduring the cross. That's the promise of God. He's given that promise to to us. You know, if you're on a team and you have the best player on your team, does it engender confidence in you? Does it not kind of excite you to want to take the field? We have the best player who's going to make the difference in the game. It encourages us. That's what the promise of God is to do. So we have here just a promise, just a prayer and a promise. Paul appeals to God, God, make us holy. Could you, could you bake that into your prayers? Those are really the first two prayers on my prayer list. God, I want to be holy, and I don't want to shame the church. Don't want to shame the church. God, I want to finish well. Doesn't mean I don't sin. I just want to own it, repent of it, and trust in God. That's what we want. God, help us be holy. And then we have a promise that he's going to do it, which for me engenders greater prayer. So, so when, you, when you take a step back, and look at holiness with me just for a minute, because I want to make sure and be clear on this. When I speak about the holiness that he calls us to, it is from God, but it doesn't mean that we don't engage in the work. You know, The holiness of God is synergistic. There is this working together with God. Our salvation is not synergistic, it's monergistic. It is simply an act of God whereby he moves with grace to save people for his glory. But in the sanctification, in the growing holiness that we have, we are working with God. In other words, a deep trust in God's ability to save us and to move us into greater and greater holiness and godliness doesn't preclude our engagement in the same. I mean, you see that in Paul's writing to the Philippians. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. You see the two together. Or Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, fifteen ten. he says, I am what I am by the grace of God, uh, but I worked harder than any of them, and yet it was the grace of God at work within me. Do you see how the two work together? So in other words, this call that Paul has given for us to follow these commands, it doesn't deny a gospel of grace. It, we're not adding to the work of salvation. We're just displaying it. It doesn't deny the gospel of grace. It doesn't deny justification by faith. God just draws us into the process. I'm going to encourage you to consider, to what degree do you make efforts towards godliness? Repentance, reconciliation. When was the last time that you you went forward and just repented someone that you sinned against? You, you want to be godly. You want to confess those areas, both to God and to others, that you've sinned. So this holiness is synergistic. You have to be engaged in it. But secondly, this holiness is going to be progressive. We don't become instantaneously holy. It takes time. I mean, it, it, there's it, on the day of Christ, it will be perfected. But right now he's doing that incremental work. This is the point of the commands of God. I want to make sure you hear this. The commands of God are to help us grow in holiness. So all the commands last week, for example, honor those who work among you or esteem them or admonish one another or strengthen the, help the weak and strengthen the brokenhearted or this idea of giving thanks in all sorts in all circumstances, or rejoicing always, or not quenching the Spirit, as we do these things, we will begin to change. But I want to remind you, it's going to be incremental. Sometimes it may seem imperceptible. You may not even see it changing, like yeast and bread. It's working, but you just don't see it. I want to encourage you to... That's why I always ask you at the end of every year, do you love God more this year than you did last year? Sometimes it's hard to see the change, but over a year you can and the reason I ask you to say, have you, have you grown in your love for God? I don't, want, I don't want you comparing yourself to other people. God may be doing something different with them. Just compare yourself to yourself a year ago. Do you love Him more? It's really not so abstract a question. It's quite concrete. Let me you. Do you see yourself growing in your love for God's word more? Uh, do you see yourself kind of finding an increasing distaste for sin? Do you find yourself increasing for Christ to return? Do you long to be with him? Do, do, you, do you want his word more? I mean, these are questions we can ask ourselves to see if there is spiritual growth and improvement in us. So holiness is synergistic. We're involved. Holiness is incremental. And then last, and this is really important, that is that holiness is essential. It's essential for us. What do I mean by that? I mean, many people feel an assurance of salvation, but they don't have a life that is in any way commensurate with their belief. So in other words, we're called not just to be, you know, to practice orthodoxy in faith, but also orthopraxy in life. You know, the the belief that we have is to accord with the behavior that we have. So John Calvin is a great theologian in the 16th century, and he says, faith alone saves. That's clear. We, we must embrace that. Faith alone saves. But faith that saves is never alone. Th- th- there's always fruit being produced by it. So many people get tripped up on James chapter 2. They say, you know, where James says, faith w- without works is dead. And they say, see, you, you, works are part of the salvation process. And that's not it at all. Let me read the whole passage. He, he says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I fully agree with that. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. So the works of godliness and holiness are evidential to the reality of our faith. In other words, when you love your neighbor, when you repent of sin, when you care for the poor, when you begin to walk in these paths of holiness, you are giving evidence to faith being real. If there isn't a pursuit of holiness and godliness, then you don't know. You really can't be assured that faith is genuine. So Jonathan Edwards, probably one of the greatest theologians that America has produced, uh, was in a time of great revival in the 18th century. Uh, Revival swept, not just the Northeast, but the East Coast. And, but after a few years, after some of these revivals, many of these conversions seem to just go the way of the dodo bird. It, it, they just kind of seem to just die on the vine. And so he began to write to try to explain what makes for a true conversion. And here's what he said this is in his treatise on religious affections. He says, The supreme proof of a true conversion is holy affections, zeal for holy things, longings after God, longings after holiness, desires for purity. He says grace, saving grace, planted in the heart at the time of the new birth is a principle of holy action and practice. So, so, So we want to test ourselves. We want to find out, do I desire greater godliness in my life? Do I want to live for God? Do, do I want to have a life that is and it can be at work, it can be in secular appointment for the glory of God. It doesn't have to be in, in Christian ministry. Do I have a growing desire for God? This is a good, you know, I have a daughter-in-law as a teacher, and most teachers know tests aren't given to crush. Tests are given to assess. Where are you? That's why the difficult thing of going to college when there's one big test at the end, boy, it's It's live or die on that test. But but normally tests are given throughout a semester. And and they're they're pivot points. So that if you're taking the test and you don't do well, you pivot, you begin to prepare. I think that's really the nature of God's mercy. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, to test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. He's not trying to undermine people maybe who are weak in the faith. or He's not wanting to do that. He's wanting us to test ourselves. You know, the Apostle Peter writes in his second letter, he says, make your calling and election sure. In other words, kick the tires on our faith. Do I see desires for godliness? Now, if you don't, what ought you to do? Well, repent of God for that. Ask for desires to be holy. Ask for God to fill you with the Spirit. Ask for God to save you and to give you those holy <coughs> affections. Appeal to Him as the only one who can do it. But don't just hear this and do nothing with it. It'd be like to to fail a test and change none of your study habits. It would make no sense at all. So what he's doing here is he's giving us a prayer. Uh, Paul is praying to God for them, but he's telling them what he's praying for, hoping that they might probably follow the same. So he prays for us. God has to be the one to make us and keep us holy. And then he promises us, he who calls you is faithful, he'll surely do it. But then notice what he does in 25 to 28. Because he moves to kind of calling the church to arms here. And what what does he do? He He says, brothers, pray for us. Paul doesn't pull the apostolic card and say, this is what I'm going to tell you to do. He appeals to them affectionately and he says, brothers and sisters, pray for me. By the way, this is the great apostle Paul. Uh, the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle who saw Christ in the heavens and heard him on the road to Damascus. This is the great apostle Paul who was taken up to the third heavens and he saw things that no eye has seen. This is the great apostle Paul who, healed, who raised the dead who healed the sick. And he's turning to this young church saying, I need you to pray for me. Would you pray for me? The humility of Paul is incredible. Pray for me. And he does this in many of the letters. In our letter, he doesn't tell us what he's praying for. In the other letters, he does. He, he says, pray for me to have boldness to preach the gospel. You think you're nervous about it? Evidently, Paul was too. So pray that I might have boldness in the gospel. Pray that the doors to the gospel would open, that I'd preach clearly as I ought. I pray for that every week. You know, he's asking for the Spirit to move. This, this missionary who planted churches around the Mediterranean basin, hey, you've got to pray for me. Now, you may be thinking right now, you may be thinking, well, why is he asking for prayer? He just told us that he was going to do it. I mean, God, he who calls is faithful, surely he will do it. Isn't there something incongruent about that? He makes a promise, but now he's having to pray. Well, remember this, God uses prayer as a means of grace to draw us in, to participate with him in this redemptive work in the world, that we're called to not just look at the promise and say, I don't need to pray. We're to pray the promises. We're to pray those promises. There's a Charles Spurgeon said, I try to go a, a sermon every eight months without a quote from Spurgeon, but I, it's a push for me. He says this, the promise of God, the promise excites prayer. What is prayer but the promise pleaded? The promise is, so to speak, the raw material of prayer. Prayer irrigates the fields of life with the waters which are stored up in the reservoirs of God's promise. The promise is the power of prayer. So let's pray to be holy. But what Paul's doing is he's saying, pray for me. I would ask you to pray for me as your pastor. I would ask you to pray for the elders of this church, the staff, the leaders of this church. Would you pray for us? Would you pray for us to have boldness in presenting the gospel to our neighbors and the people that we work with? Would you pray for us to be discerning and, and wise in the decisions that we have to make? Would you pray that we're holy and that we love holiness? I'm asking you, would you pray for us as Paul is asking for the same? I mean, to think that you would not pray for us would seem to be, if we're leading and seeking to lead this church, it's essential that you want us leading well. Pray for us. I would plead with you to do that. Every day I'd ask you. I'd be a happy legalist to ask every day. Pray for us to be holy and to be strong. But, but notice that he asks more than prayer. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. This is obviously pre-COVID. CDC would not approve of this at all. But he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, that's a term of affection. It's a way of expression, expressing cultural affection. And we shake hands. When we lived in Europe, some countries you kissed on both cheeks. Some countries are kissed on one cheek. It's just a way of. And Paul would ask regularly in his letters to greet one another with a holy kiss. Peter says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, why is he doing this? Well, he's making a theological statement here. He's declaring that we have been made different by the gospel that we have been drawn from death to life, and we've been drawn into being brothers and sisters with one another. And to greet one another with a holy kiss is to express that solidarity that we have in the gospel. Even in the midst of conflict that we may have at points in life with one another over secondary issues, we can still greet each other with a kiss. Paul is really saying to this church, they might have had some struggle, You know, obviously he had to admonish those who are idle, and in the second letter to the Thessalonians, he had to do it again. There were people that were weak that were being ignored. There were people that were weak-hearted that were struggling. And maybe there was this conflict, and he's saying, come together and greet one another. Encourage one another with a holy kiss. What's he saying? He's saying, be united. Fight for unity in this church. Pray for it. But seek it. If you have an issue with somebody, speak to them about it, not to everybody else. Or reconcile quickly. Own your issues. But but what separates us, what makes us distinct from the world, is that we are one in Christ. The world knows nothing of unity. They are divided and divisive. They form tribes, no doubt. But what organizes their tribes is not something transcendent. It's not a gospel. We are to be unique to the world. Why? Because we're different people, different color, different backgrounds, different experiences, different interests, and yet we're together in the gospel. The gospel is that compelling force that draws us together. That is unique to the world. The world can gather around gardening habits and cars and and political parties and so forth. But to draw this kind of differences around the gospel is unique, and it displays our being set apart, our sanctification to the world. And then last, he says, that we are to gather around the word. Look with me at 27. In 27, he says, I put you under oath before the Lord, to have this letter read to the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's interesting. Do you notice he shifts to the first person singular? I put you under oath. It's like Paul takes the pen from the secretary who's recording this letter. He says, I charge you. This is the language of the courtroom. I charge you. I put you under oath to have this letter written. What's Paul doing? Well, Paul knows that they're fractured. They're apart in the community. He says, I want you to come together and I want you to read what I'm writing and I want you to hear it and to do it. So Paul is pulling full apostle here. Do you understand? Paul sees himself differently. I don't have the authority to do what he just did. He does because he knows that he's been uniquely called to be an apostle. He sees himself as an Old Testament prophet. He knows that what he says is actually from God. I pray that what I say is from God. He knows it. And you know this already because in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, and we thank God constantly for this, that you re- when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God. This is why we're studying. This is why we're doing what he just said. We are reading his letter and speaking about it and applying it and putting our lives in line with it. What Paul's doing is he's saying, honor this importance of gathering together to hear the word of God. The word of God is what sanctifies you. Jesus himself said that in John 17, 17. He says, sanctify them by the word of truth to sanctify them. It's you guys hearing God's word. Now remember, there's there's something deceptive about the word of God. It's not flashy. Now sometimes you may read a text and you may be immediately convicted by it and you you may be you know, caught up by God's spirit and and challenged and changed. But most of the time, it's this ongoing hearing of the word over and over, and it begins to mold you. You know, it's God's words that formed the world and shaped the world. And it's God's words that form a people and shape a people. Otherwise, you have to draw your lessons on life and what makes a person a person by the culture that you're raised in. But God is refashioning the people, but he does it through the word. So like when he says, don't quench the spirit, that's something we do. We're not going to quench the spirit, we're going to respond to it. When we admonish the idol, that's something we do. He's fashioning us into being his children. He's forming us into, he's, you know what he's doing? He's making us fully human. You know, so as I've shared before, when we as kids in high school and college would be, um, well, as you know, you know, I had a bit of a checkered past, so Mom would often say, you're acting like a bunch of beasts. And we were. We were rebellious beasts. We were like part of the animal kingdom. But as we come to faith and we're being changed, we become fully human. We become like Christ, the perfect man or the perfect woman, by His Word. So you have to... you. you This call to gather together, it is to be a priority of all priorities. God, how are you going to shape me today? What are you going to share with me today to change me? So here we have this beautiful, this prayer. He gives us a promise that would encourage greater prayer. And then he pleads for us. He pleads. He says, listen, pray together, walk in unity together, and then gather around the word together, and you'll be changed, you'll be sanctified. And on that day, When Jesus Christ returns, in all of his glory, you will be grateful, you'll be thankful. And then notice how he ends. He ends always as he begins, right? He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. The grace, this is the fountain of everything. You know, the whole series was enduring with hope. The hope that we have in the gospel that he has delivered us from ourselves, frankly, and from our sin, and he's brought us to the promise that we will be with him forever. We are his new creation to be with him forever. And that hope will give us the endurance that we need in this life. And it began with grace, as your life did, and so will your, your life will end with grace. We need the grace of God. So let's ask him now, just silently, perhaps it's time of confessing what you have been convicted of, or maybe it's a time of just seeking his aid. God, help me to want to be holy as You are holy, and then I'll pray for us in just a moment.